Welcome to the Data Dive Podcast, a podcast where we share the stories of real-world data-driven applications in various industries, hear how some of the most innovative companies are being built, and much more. I'm your host, Abraham Cherian, the founder of Data Dive, an international youth-driven organization focused on developing data literacy among the next generation. This is part two of the podcast with Dr. Nina Vassen. Dr. Vassen received her medical degree from Harvard Medical School and got her MBA from Stanford. She founded Stanford Brainstorm Lab, which was the first academic lab to combine disciplines of technology, medicine, and entrepreneurship to empower innovative mental health care solutions. She now serves as the Chief Medical Officer of Real, a mental health care startup that recently raised $37 million in its Series B round. Yeah, so could you tell us about how you joined Real and your work as a Chief Medical Officer there and what your favorite part of the whole experience has been so far? Yeah, I would love to. So how did I join Real? So that goes back to the person you mentioned, Ariella Safira, who is our phenomenal CEO. So this is a, I, one of my favorite stories. Um, Ariella actually was my student. So we were student and professor about six years ago. Um, through my lab, I teach a, a couple of courses at Stanford on men, like starting a mental health company, mental health design, innovation, leadership, et cetera. And Ariella was a, a rock star student in the very first iteration of that class. She was a computer science and math senior at Stanford at that time. And it was actually a medical school course that was really kind of taken by a lot of grad students. But we had this like rock star undergrad who was Ariella. And that's how we met originally. And, uh, you know, even at that time, I uh, remember pulling her aside and saying, like, you need to start a company. And, and, and that's not, you know, a lot of at, at Stanford, there's so many students who want to start companies. It's kind of just part of the ethos of Silicon Valley and everything. I, I did not say that to every student. I would not say that to every student I met. But there was something really special about her, even you know, at that time. And and you know, now it's only only been shown like times a million, but that is absolutely the case. So pulled her aside at that, that very early stage, saw that there was something really special in her. And uh, and so as she after she graduated, we kind of we kept up, we you know, maintained a kind of a professor, professor-student, uh, the kind of mentorshipy relationship. And so when she decided to start real, she reached out and said, you know, here's what I'm doing. Like, and and so like, this is amazing. I'm you know, so proud of you. But actually, I really started as an advisor. I actually said, you know, I don't think it's the right time for me to, you know, to join or anything. But like, I'm so glad that you're doing this. And from the very beginning, she said, I want you to know, like, you're going to be my chief medical officer. And I sort of laughed. I'm like, okay, that's sweet. You know, what, what a great student. I love that you're asking me. But you know, I was I was doing other things at the time. And she is relentless. And she is determined and everything. And she's also phenomenal and has brilliant ideas. And so how I got to it, and I should actually take a step back and say that, you know, because of my lab, I'm very fortunate to get to kind of have that same pitch, if you will, from, you know, now probably over 100 companies out there. And, you know, a lot of folks who are kind of very fortunately asking myself and my team to be a part of their work in some way. And, you know, I always felt like if I was going to, it's one thing to advise a company, it's one thing to kind of, you know, do a little consulting here and there. But if I was actually going to you know, drop other things and take on a big role like chief medical officer, that it had to be something, some someone and something that was really, really special. 
And what I really saw in, you know, obviously I already thought Ariella was special as a person. What I saw though in her ideas was that she didn't want to just make incremental change to our already like existing and unfortunately quite broken system. She wanted to like take what she always says is like, let's take 10 steps back. Let, you know, let's kind of clear the board and start from scratch and think like where, like, what do we want mental health to look like? And she wanted to make transformative change not just incremental change, but transformative change. And that is the type of change that I want to be a part of. That's the impact I want to make. And so, you know, that combination is really what led to me just feeling so compelled by Real and the mission, as well as so many other things, the values, um, you know, Real is really all around. Let's celebrate therapy. Let's celebrate people addressing their mental health. And let's, you know, let's really think about the experience for users where this is a part of people's everyday life that we're not just waiting until people reach crisis, but we're thinking about how do we prevent that crisis from even happening and be proactive about all of this. So all of that I thought was just like, this is, yes, 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 this is it. So that's how I became chief medical officer of Real. And then you asked about my favorite part. So I, I think there are two parts to that. The first, we'll go back to what we talked about before, which is impact. I, you know, that, as I said, that's kind of how I'm, I'm making my decisions. And when I think about the impact that we're having, when we hear from members, you know, either through feedback or there's so many times that I've had something completely random and, you know, it, it somehow, like somehow I end up sharing, oh, I work at this company called Real and like someone just completely lights up and they're like, oh my God, like you work at Real? Thank you so much. I love your company. And like, that is just absolutely amazing when that happens, you know, and it happens all the time. And it almost is like mind blowing to me how often this happens. So, the, so it's the, the impact that we're able to make on patients. But, but then actually what I would say my absolute favorite part is the team working with the most phenomenal people I've ever had the privilege of working with. And I've been very, very privileged to work with really, really awesome people pretty much my entire life. And this team just is like so outstanding. They are so brilliant. They are so talented and also so kind and such good people that it makes for really like, you know, the best professional experience I've, I've really ever had. And, and, and just so fortunate to get to work with these amazing people. Yeah, I really love how you guys are, like you said, sort of destigmatizing mental health, like, you know, uh, and also I think, I think Ariel said, said this, like, you can't like, expect to work out for one month in your life and be healthy, you know, for the rest of your life. So same thing with mental health. And I think it's great yeah. that you're going to incorporate it into people's everyday lives, opposed to, you know, a periodic or just like a sporadic thing, right? You know, it's, it's integrated into your everyday life, just like breakfast, lunch and dinner, you know. Yeah, I love that. I'm, you're absolutely right. So Real is focused on expanding mental health care by expanding, you know, like you said, the accessibility and diversity in types of care. So, you know, there are a lot of organizations now trying to innovate in the mental health care space. Uh, from your lens, what do you think has set Real apart from other organizations and allowed it to thrive in the way it has? Yeah, really, really great question. I think the first thing is that we are creating a brand new therapy model. And, you know, as I was saying before, we're not just trying to make small improvements on what's already out there. We're really creating something brand new. And we're doing that in a way that allows people to access their care on their own time, anonymously, any time of the day. And really that's because so many people say that they can engage with traditional care. They can't find someone, they can't find a therapist to, to talk to, they can't afford it, or they're so overwhelmed with everything else going on, they just, they can't even find the time to, you know, to address these sorts of things. That is a poor user experience. 
And so that's really where we started is like, how can we meet people earlier in this journey so that we're preventing or, you know, meeting people earlier and not when things get to be too bad, but really more creating an experience such that it is, it feels good and it is easy to address your mental health and not this like constant struggle, which is, you know, there are a few things that like, I almost hear like these universal kind of frustrating experiences. I just moved and I'll tell you moving. I have never heard anyone talking about moving as being a great experience. It is always pretty painful. And unfortunately, most people have some aspect to that with like getting mental health care. And we do not want that to be the case. So that's the very first thing is that brand new therapy model. The second thing I think is scale. One of the statistics that I think is really fascinating is if you know when people think about mental health care, what what the kind of visualization in mind for most people is therapy and like you know this one-on-one therapy. At the end of the day, if we were to optimize all the therapists out there, the number of Americans we'd be able to treat, the percentage of our population, what 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 is that? So you know, I said that 50% of the population is going to deal with the mental health diagnosis over the course of their lifetime or rather meet criteria for mental diagnosis. At any given time, 20% of the population has an active mental health disease, struggle, challenge. If we optimize all the therapists, we can only reach 7% of the population. So already we know that the existing system only does so much. There are huge barriers in place. And so, you know, with real, the way we built our model, we have the ability to have scale in a way that when you're building based on when you're building something for that 7%, that only goes so far. We're not dependent on one-on-one. We're not, we don't have that bottleneck that really almost everyone else does around, around um, you know, clinical hours, clinical, clinical people. We're not building with the constraints of the current system. So that is going to allow us to scale much, much, much broader and reach one reach that you know, 93% of people who never will be able to access therapy. And also we've had these great experiences of people who do do therapy and do real. And what we hear from them and actually their therapists is that these people get better faster because they're engaging in real. You know, So it's both for if you do therapy and if you don't. The final thing I'll say is we always say you know, in mental health, meet people where they are. Something we've been saying for decades in mental health. And it's something that I'm hearing a lot now from folks in design actually, and in, in the tech world. For us, you know, what that actually means is thinking about something that's a little unique, I think, which is when we think about meeting people where they are, you know, we think about accessibility and things like that. We also at Real think about the language that we're using. And let me give you an example here. If we were asked, we, we, and so we think about, talk about data, you know, we, we collect data and what we do at Real is we have all these journals, people fill out journals and they do exercises. And so we have very rich, interesting data of people talking about their feelings and talking about their challenges and everything. And what we're able to extrapolate from that data is how do people talk and think about various issues? And we're always using that data to improve our product all, continuously. The example I want to give around that is um, if we ask people, are you depressed? That word depressed resonates with only a certain part of the population. It, when we ask Gen Zers, are you depressed? Very few people will say yes to that. Instead, though, if we ask them, do you feel the big sad? All the, you know, everyone, lights go off, hands go up. In this case, buttons get pressed, right? Because for Gen Z, the big sad is how they think about like their terminology for depression. 
I'm an older millennial. I had no idea what that word meant <laughs> or what that phrase meant. I never would you know, use, I would say, yeah, I'm kind of depressed or like I'm, I'm pretty low today or something, right? And so in this case, having the data of what are people saying and using that and then being able to put that back and give that back to the user around using their own language, I think that is tremendously powerful. It's meeting people where they are. It's um, so the you know the branding, the positive destigmatizing, all of those I think are are a tremendous part of what sets us apart, and why I'm also really proud to be at this company. Yeah, I love that. So to kind of continue on the data science side, uh, you guys recently developed the Real Pulse program, where you conglomerate various types of user data, ranging from anxiety and mood to productivity, and turn them into actionable insights. What steps does Real take to ensure that the data collected is free of bias and so that the insights themselves are uh, reliable? That is tremendously important to us. You know, the, all of everything around, like, you know, the ethics and, and, and respect of the data and of the user in that process is really important to us. And so I think there are two aspects of, of your question. The first is, you know, how do we, so you said, how do we make sure that the data is free of bias? And that the insights acquired are reliable. I'm actually going to answer the first part of that first, or the, rather the second part of that first. The way that we know this is reliable is that the scales that we're using are the scales that have been kind of the gold standard tried and true scales. So for example, we use the PHQ-9, which is kind of very most one of the most standard metrics we have to measure depression. And we use the GAD-7, which is one of the most standard scales we have out there for anxiety. These are the same scales that get used in dozens and hundreds and you know thousands of clinical trials that get used me, that get used by doctors and patients every day and even like you know if a medication gets created and the fda fda trials are being done to determine is this medication effective is this effective against depression or anxiety those same scales get used so these are the gold standard scales that have been kind of replicated with you know all sorts of populations all sorts of diseases all sorts of everything and so they are the gold standard and that's how we know that it's reliable because it's just been tested time and time again um, and we have all that data to kind of compare it to so that that's how we know you know we're starting with the right uh we're starting with the right metrics the right we're asking the right questions and those questions have already been kind of proven if you will um by 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 others for the last many many years the second part of that is how do we make sure that it's free of bias? And so what's, I think, really important about the way that we collect data. So, for example, we might ask you, you, you were kind of saying in the real pulse, we might ask you, how's your mood? How's your stress? How's your sense of productivity? How's your sense of connection? Let's say we ask you that today. We ask you that a month from now. We ask you that two months from now. What is so? I think where that question is coming from is that the question itself is a subjective question. Right. Like I'm having to answer for myself. How do I feel like I'm doing? How do I make sure I'm not biased in my own results? Well, the good thing, though, is that because we're just comparing Nina to Nina or Abraham to Abraham or rather Abraham in April to Abraham in May, that already kind of takes the bias out there because we're not comparing you to anyone else. We're just comparing you to yourself. So even if I, as Nina, tend to, you know, if, if I when I'm thinking about my own productivity, if my productivity, if my 10 out of productivity might be your two, right? Um, but I'm just comparing myself to myself. That So it, I'm not going to be biased by the way you define productivity and, and things like that. 
So I guess going back to design again, like uh, in terms of like- It's a good good area to talk about, Abraham. (laughs) Designing the, so I think one area that bias could come up is like whenever you design the questions. Like for example, like you were saying with the Gen Z, like they might not say they're depressed, but they're big sad, right? So in terms of designing the questions, so you get like accurate or or like you make sure that the users uh, themselves are like understanding the questions and are able to answer it honestly and effectively. Like what is the process behind that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and and so what we do actually when we present the questions is it's a lot of education. I think that the reason why a lot of the data, especially in mental health, it can be frustrating is that you're asked these questions and you have no idea why you're getting asked these questions and what these questions even mean. We ha- In our user design experience, and this is because we have phenomenal users who work with phenomenal therapists, who work with you know, phenomenal kind of expert uh, expertise, you know, experts, expertise, experts and everything um, around the product, all our product folks that they have thought very deeply about it. And so we have a full education component where you can click to better understand, you know, why we're asking something, what certain things mean. We actually even allow you to like click through to see the scientific evidence and the research papers that came about that led to us creating this question or designing this tool and everything. So it's the whole educating the user so that the user really understands what they're doing before they do it. That is critical to anything that we do. And it's been something that we've been very proactive about doing so that our users have that sense when they're, when they're doing something. Yeah. So you kind of, you might've kind of answered this uh, with the last question, but Compared to other areas of healthcare, mental healthcare doesn't have as much of data collection and data analysis. So is it harder to navigate using data science in mental healthcare because you don't necessarily know what constitutes good, clean data compared with like a more common disease like diabetes that data collection has been done on for like a lot longer? Or do you think- It is. mm -hmm. Yes. No, you, you nailed it. It absolutely is. And I hope that there are the people listening here students and you know professionals i hope that there are people who will take this on as a problem they want to solve because it's tremendously important yes you're absolutely right and i think part of that is that as i was talking about before that a lot of the data we have in mental health is subjective right it's not like in diabetes where you have a blood test it's not like in cancer where you have a image you know like a ct scan or an mri or something it is self-report a lot of times it's like me saying how i think i'm doing and that data is, the, the, the fidelity of that data is just different, right? And so it's really understanding how then do you use data like that, which is very different from my blood sugar is, you know, this number, right? At the same time, I think what I want to share here is, to me, why data and why data times mental health is so fascinating is that historically, if we look at what data we collected compared to what we now have the ability to measure, we are now able to measure aspects of human behavior that we never have before. And a big, the, one of the biggest parts of that is our smartphone. Because of the phone, we're able to track both passively and actively, but in this case, actually passively in some ways is one of the most fascinating areas, how the number of steps people are taking, the, the GPS location to like understand how much they're moving around. Where their where their eyes are pointed, how what spelling mistakes they're making, and like how often they're making those, all these really interesting aspects of human behavior that like again, a, Freud never taught like taught, thought thought about asking these sorts of questions, right? But like you know, neither did other you know neither 
neither did Frazier, <laughs> who is my favorite psychiatrist of, of no. Um, but even, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, we didn't have the ability to ask these questions. And so we never thought about it. Now that we have the ability to, to like look into the human mind in ways that we never could before, because we can collect this data, it really allows us to understand and, and uh, understand aspects behavior of pathology that we just never could. And now, but however, to your point of like, is this good clean data? Is this, you know, that's actually the big question. And I think that a lot of people are doing fascinating work in this field. Right now we know like there are a lot of really interesting correlations. We don't yet, it's the data is not yet in a place where it's caught. We can say, oh, this is causal, for example, or moreover, like when we see this, that means this person has this disease or that that means we should treat this person in this way. I think that is all coming. I think it's going to be coming over the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And that's actually why I'm so excited to be a part of this field. Data is going to be a tremendous part of the future of mental health. And, and, and it's, it's a good, it will absolutely make huge differences at, at the same time right now. It's, it is, it is very complex and it does need to, it has a lot, there's a lot of work to be done. But the final thing I'll say about that is that, you know, not only I think is this data so important and valuable to have, I also think that it needs to be actionable. Like when you have data, you need to be able to do something with it. It's not just like, let's collect, collect data for like data, data for, 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 for data's sake. But let's actually make sure that it adds value to the user, not just the clinician, but also, but, you know, really that adds value to the user. And uh, that, again, that's, that's exactly what we're doing at Real. And that's why I think that, um, that it's such an interesting space. That's why I'm here today talking to you. So at Real, I think you guys do a lot of interdisciplinary collaboration, right? And that's been instrumental for your success. But on the data science side, how does the data analyst at Real make sure that the insights that they develop can be like easily underst uh, understood by therapists or people who may not have those technical skills necessarily. Yeah, right. And remember one of the things I said earlier on was that one of, what I saw in field as a whole is that there's so many different stakeholders who all speak different languages. That's actually one of the best things that I've seen at Real as, an, as a, from the organizational operational perspective is that we are such a interdisciplinary sort of company, um, our clinical team, our therapy team is embedded into every part of our product. So it isn't just our data scientist, our you know, phenomenal data scientist, Wes out there who crunches his numbers and does his magic, but like he is always working hand by hand with the therapist. The therapists like inform him from the very beginning, what are the questions we want to ask and why? And they work hand in hand to, you know, to look at the data. We actually, not, it's not just a therapist, it's not just our, you know, it, our data science. We have our clinical research team. And, and when we are doing our clinical studies, like all of those three teams are coming together to look at the data, to kind of crunch the numbers, to analyze and figure out what's going on. And so it, it's kind of like, it, uh, we're, we're fortunate, I suppose, in that like data has never been, in all ways, like clinical has never been, isolated, data has never been isolated. All of those people are always talking to everyone else. So I guess it's, it's just, it's, it's in our, every part of our product. Yeah, so I guess good communication solves it all, right? Keeping everyone in loop yeah. at all times is, is, really, is really helpful. Exactly. So I wanted to shift gears here a little bit and talk about how prevalent mental illness has been for young people. How do you think this issue can be tackled as if you look at the statistics, I mean, it's pretty jarring, right? Like suicide is the second leading cause of death in individuals aged 10 to 34 and adolescents are like 20% of adolescents have some sort of mental illness. 
So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll even add in a couple statistics. Um, we have a data crowd, so I assume statistics are, are well welcomed. When it, 50% of mental health conditions show up before age 14, 75% before age 24. Very, very different epidemiology than most other diseases out there, right? A lot of other diseases like chronic diseases, like diabetes, cancer, heart disease, you know, the, the scale, kind of the curve just increases with age, right? Like almost like flat, and then it kind of goes up and up the older you get. With mental health, the huge majority, especially the onset of these diseases, occurs when you are a teenager or a young adult. And so, what I think that shows us is that there is tremendous potential and or rather that it's not even just like potential it's that it is our almost our like moral imperative to start young we have to address this for kids we have to address this for teenagers and young adults we have to be thinking in a proactive way we can't be waiting until things reach crisis we have to be always like thinking about how do we find someone when they just have one condition like when we diagnose that mental health condition when we diagnose a mental health condition, there are multiple criteria someone might meet. They might be sleeping poorly and eating too much and feeling hopeless. And, you know, uh, their, their concentration might be low. Those are four things right there. How, how, what about if just that, that first thing happens that we're able to figure out, hey, something's going on and intervene instead of needing like eight things to happen and that it happens, you know, and that it leads to someone being in the emergency room, for example. So we have to start young. And I think that what I feel like is critically important there is who can we work with to maximize that impact? And the two groups that I always think about are schools and parents. Schools, that's where every kid is spending their time for the most part. Parents are parents, right? So one, they're obviously these really big, like, you know, legal ethical questions, but also like that's what a family unit looks like. And so, so um, whoever your parental figures are, right? Maybe family even is a, is a better answer than, than parents. And so schools and families have to be a part of the solution. And the more we can do to bring them in and, and uh, engage people in those ways, I think the better we'll be able to do in terms of diagnosing people early, getting them the right resources they need, and turning these numbers around. Yeah, I think you had a really interesting point there with how most diseases occur when people get older. I think when you're younger, you're expecting to be pretty healthy and your parents are expecting that as well. So if kids come to their parents saying, hey, there might be something wrong with my mental health, uh, they might be more skeptical, at least initially, right? Even though that probably shouldn't be the case. You are absolutely right. So you've said in the past that stigma is problems one, two, and three when discussing like the biggest issues in mental health. How do you think the advent of telehealth care has made it easier to receive care? And also, do you think there are specific advancements in AI and data science, which can help reduce stigma to help promote more people to get care? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me start with that first part is, you know, how has telehealth made a difference? You know, it has a little, but it, not tremendously. And I, I wish I could say something different. But the reality is that, you know, over these last two years, all clinics basically went online, right? It was forcing function of COVID and the pandemic. And now what we realized was that one in, in healthcare, one, we probably could have done a while ago, but we didn't. It was actually really a lot of times because of insurance. Insurance did not reimburse telehealth visits in the way that in-person visits were addressed, were reimbursed. And so we didn't have that incentive to put things online. Again, the, the pandemic kind of made that all happen. 
And I think it made a little bit of a difference. You know, certainly it is a little bit easier to get care now. What's been really fascinating uh, for me from a mental health perspective is seeing how the no-show rates have gone down tremendously, or rather the, you know, show-up rates have, have improved, which is, you know, when you're living your life and in 50 different places, it's hard to go see your doctor in person. When you're at home all day, as we have, a lot of people have been for the last two years, you're going to see, you're going to see your doctor, right? So that's been one thing that's been really good. So it's made it a little bit easier, both for the patient and for the doctor. That's great. But as I said, it's really only been an incremental change. It's not the answer that's going to solve the mental health crisis. It's not going to help reach 2 billion people. It's really just a nice start. The second part of your question was, you know, what are the advancements in AI and data science and how does this reduce stigma? To me, that this is one of the most fascinating things. Data alone reduces stigma. So by making, and, and this is for mental health, with, when it comes to mental health and how people conceptualize their disease and who they are because they have these conditions, you know, very, very, very stigmatizing. Because of how data make something objective by being able to give something a number that actually by itself, we have seen, you know, in scientific studies that that reduces the stigma, reduces the way that people think it's not just, you know, uh, there's something wrong with me or I'm wrong because, but rather, oh, this is my number. Just like this is my blood sugar, sugar number. You know, this is, you know, something else. This is my well-being number. This is my stress number. And so I think that is really powerful where literally just having data can change culture, can say change data so much. That's pretty amazing. And then uh, you know, the, I think the other thing I would say there is that as this all happens, as this field grows, statistics serve such a really important education, pers- education purpose, which is, you know, again, when it comes to mental health, because it's so subjective in a lot of ways. How, how am I doing? You know, how, people always ask, but like, how are you doing today? And, and what I've been really trying to not just be like, oh, I'm good, you know, type of that kind of default, but like really, really thinking how I'm doing. And I do do that. But yet at the same time, like when I can have data show me certain aspects of that, like that's really, really interesting. And, and I think that being able to educate people on how they're doing, help them get a sense of that, that part is tremendously important. And where it's not just education, but like now that we have this number, here's what this means, and here what here's what you can do about it. It's what we do at Real. It's what I want to see the rest of the field, you know, start doing yesterday, really. <laughs> but as it will, it will happen over these next few years. Wait. So when you say data itself reduces stigma, are you saying that if, for example, someone logs into the Real app and it shows statistics about how they're feeling, it can be kind of proof to others that they have a mental health issue? or are struggling with their mental health? Or do you mean something else with that? Sure, sure. So the research I think that's been done about this is that it's more that, you know, when you think, oh, I'm depressed and here's what I'm dealing with versus when you can see an objective number, like when you take that THQ9 that I was referring to, which is asking nine different questions around the various symptoms of depression. And you can put a number to that, that by having a number, that actually decreases the stigma. And it makes it from the narrative, I think, around these struggles changes from I'm having a really hard time and I'm not performing well or I'm not concentrating to this is my number. And the it, it kind of almost makes like something subjective objective in, in a way, right? And, and it gives it that like ability to think of it more objectively. And I think that 
then makes it that that then that's actually what makes it less stigmatizing. So it's the process in, in this case. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. How do you think data-driven mental health care models will evolve in the future? Specifically, is there anything real is working on right now to make care more personalized and accessible? Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, data-driven mental health care solutions must be a part of our future. Certainly any, anything I will be doing, I think real will be doing, will always be celebrating data. Um, but, you know, and then you said specifically, you know, what are, what are we doing at real to make things more personalized, accessible? So one, I think, you know, in terms of accessibility, our price point and being able, you know, being something that people can access, I think that is tremendous. For less than the price of one session of therapy, you can access real for an entire year. There's not literally nothing else I know out there um, that has the type of value and what it offers at the price point that we do. Um, and um, so I think that that really allows us to reach people who may never get care, who may never engage with their mental health, and and those who do, those who really want to engage with their mental health and and, and everything. And so that that part is uh, really like you know critical from the beginning. Next is constantly iterating, really you know looking at the data, analyzing the data. As I said, bringing our multi like disciplinary stakeholders, you know, multiple stakeholders together to see what is the data showing us and then making product decisions based on that, uh, improving the product based on that, reaching out to our members and adding new services based on that. Like all the, that constant iteration where the data is the foundation of what that looks like. Next is reaching people. You know, what we're able to do is reach people anytime in any place. That's, that's kind of what we have at real. And I think that, you know, you said like, how are we making it more personalized? It's like, we're letting you get the help that you want in the way that you need and the way that you want. And what's really interesting there is like, we see most people actually log in and get this help at like 10, 11 PM. No therapist is out there at 10 or 11 PM, right? You can't get, they can't get an appointment at that time. And so recognizing that, and this is because we have this data. So this is a different type of data I'm talking about. This data is like the user data that we have of how are our users showing up and using our product, that is teaching us such a tremendous amount. It's teaching us that when given the choice, people want to deal with their stress at 10 p.m., not at 3 p.m. on Wednesday. Um, and so that then allows us to improve our product and make it more user-centric because we're able to see what are people already choosing to do and let's let's build on that and not let's build on some kind of like antiquated or random like calendar for you know, that, that, that tells us, oh, I can fill in this one hour. Let me do that. Right. So that part, I think is really, really important. And then finally, you know, we're all feedback. I think feedback is a really critical element of data and we're always taking user feedback and always iterating on the product based on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to, you know, specifically talk about like personalizing the care, like real has different pathways, right. That users can use. And also I was like amazed by like when I saw the cost of care, like for a month, I mean, so I think it's like around like $12, $14 or something, right? That's correct. Yeah. Way cheaper than like just one hour of therapy. So yeah, that, that's, that's amazing what you guys have been able to do there. Do you think that apps like the one real has or chatbots will be able to develop to the point that data science or AI can accurately predict if someone has mental illness or is at risk for suicide? And to get to that point, because I don't think, you know, most companies are there yet. What steps do you think are necessary? 
100% technology will be able to do this, likely some already does and absolutely will be able to do this. What I think is actually really interesting here is that as clinicians, as the people who have been doing this for decades, when I say clinicians, I mean like the field as a whole, like all of mental health providers, you know, psychiatrists, therapists, the whole field, we are actually very, very poor at predicting suicide and, and self-harm. So if we think, you know, when we're able to collect all this data, passive data, active data, all the data that we're able to collect, I talked about these different forms of behavior that we can collect with the cell phone, but even like the words that we're using are tremendously powerful. And we see that research, a lot of research has already been done on things like this, like when people's words become more negative, that, increase, that shows that there's an increased risk of, of suicide and self-harm. There's so many sort of, I mean, amazing, fascinating world that's already out there, like around everything from the words people use and, you know, other, other elements of their behavior. But so, yes, that will happen, but also it needs to happen because, as I said, clini like clinicians are amazing in a lot of ways. Clinicians are not good at predicting suicide. And so we do need tools that are able to do that and be a partner to clinicians to help us understand, okay, this person as, is at much greater risk. And then what we need to do is make sure to keep collecting this data and have a mechanism so that it is clinically informed and clinically useful on both ends, on the one end that it's you know, useful to the patient and that it's useful to the clinician and that it kind of helps facilitate that interaction. Because what also needs to happen is, you know, whoever's collecting this data, we need to make sure that because suicide and self-harm are those biggest, riskiest things, why does the Stanford Brainstorm start framework start with safety as number one? Because that is the worst case scenario, right? Like of all the things that happen in mental health, that's the thing that we want to really protect against and do everything we can to keep people safe. So there need to be really good operations in place to make sure that when we are able to flag something that that's being done in an ethical, safe, right way that is effective and gets someone to care, gets someone to the most appropriate care as quickly and efficiently as possible and sets them up for clinical therapeutic success. I'll just go back to our Stanford Brainstorm framework, you know, safe. Is it safe? Is it effective? Is it accessible? Is it empathically designed? All of those things are what we need to see and what we are seeing in AI. And as it does get to a place where it is predicting not only suicide, but what we're seeing now is like voice samples can better predict depression and psychosis than an average clinician. And that's because, you know, when you have thousands and thousands of data points, when you are able to measure things and hear things and analyze things in ways that the human mind cannot, you know, great things can come of that. And let's make sure to use clinicians with that and get people the help that they need. So that's not just, it's not just a robot doing everything. Yeah. And do you think there are any like specific challenges, like maybe real is working on this or specific issues you guys are worried about as data science and AI are continued to be integrated further in mental health care? I, I, I guess maybe you keep on going back to the Stanford, the Stanford uh, brainstorm lab framework, but is that something you, you still use pretty thoroughly, I would imagine? We, we do use it thoroughly. In this case, I will I will not promote, <laughs> I, will, I will not say listen to us, everyone, though really it, I do think it's a good framework. I, I actually love our framework. I love coming back to it and you know sharing it and and getting it out there and everything. I think it's think it's uh, you know great. But but we'll not talk about that this time. So I think that um yes, to answer your question, yes, absolutely. Um and what concerns me most and what I think 
now that we already know this is a pro this has been a problem historically in research and in data, I think we have to be proactive as AI gets designed and AI gets gets um, integrated is really around equity. And um, you know, AI is a reflection of what data looked like 10 years ago. So how do we make sure that we are being proactive and bringing a diverse group of people to the table to collect that data, be the foundation of that data? Because if we're going to build something based on that data, that needs to be good data, right? What we know historically from scientific studies and trials are, are that, you know, primarily kind of, you know, educated middle-class white men kind of made up almost all from our pharmaceutical trials for, you know, decades and decades. So we have to make sure that we're including women, that we're including minorities, that we're including all diversity, you know, whether it's gender or sexuality or, you know, any, any element such that really that we are then represent, we're representing who we are as people. And so there is, you know, we know about already so much bias in AI. And I, so, so now that we already know that exists, I think everything moving forward needs to be proactive to push equity. Um, that's so tremendously important to Is It Real? One of the things I'm most proud about in our own research is that literally like that has been one of the top values that we have put out there. Um, our research team is just tremendously committed, our whole, all, our whole team and especially our research team, I would say, is so tremendously committed to health equity. And when we did our own research, we you know made sure to have equity in our studies that we were collecting data and doing that in the best ways, reaching multiple, you know, uh, minority groups and everything, which is, is, has just not been the case with most research. So that needs to be a big part of it so that everything get, that gets designed then becomes more and more equitable. Yeah. And I think I'm really happy that the conversation around health equity has really been heating up and a lot of people are talking about it. So we're not facing the same challenges that 50, hundred years ago when you didn't have diverse teams at all. You know, we're, yeah. we're preventing those challenges for the, you know, future decades and centuries, right? A hundred percent. What is some advice you would give to your younger self? And in addition, I mean, you've been accomplishing amazing feats since like high school, right? So are there any frameworks that you have that have empowered you to continuously grow and evolve while, you know, avoiding, you know, high stress and the effects of that and burnout? I will answer the second part of that first and, and then the first part of that. I just like everyone else am prone to stress and burnout. And, you know, I think that this is actually something for me that I kind of really actually just came out of the quarantine is realizing the importance of self-care um, and how, you know, critical it is for all of us. And that is, so I think definitely, I think what I would say is give to yourself as you give to others. I, I'm so fortunate to have grown up in a family and community where where giving and where, you know, that has been such a critical value in how, in how we show up, giving to others specifically. However, I think what I did not necessarily understand or learn when I was younger is the importance of giving to myself and how the tremendous role that that plays. Um, I think the quarantine definitely helped make that possible for a lot of people, helped a lot of people see that absolutely for me. And actually those, that, those are, you know, some of my big goals this year are helping myself learn that really, really well. So I say that just to, you know, kind of say, yes, you know, I, I acknowledge what you're saying, but like, even with kind of success in other ways, it, it's so critical. And, and these lessons are things that we all need to learn and focusing on giving to ourselves, investing in ourselves and putting our health and mental health first and foremost is across the board, no matter who you are, something that is tremendously valuable and just allows, you know, one of the things I said at the very beginning is that 
mental health is the biggest thief of human potential when we're able to take care of ourselves and put our well-being first, you know, again, like in the way that we are just sort of trying to champion it real in the way that I think all of us in mental health are just really trying to trying to do, whether we're clinicians, whether that we're product designers, um, whether we're researchers, it is about how we can all reach our best potential and put like making our health a priority is kind of like that first step in all that happening. Dr. Vasin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I loved hearing about your work at Stanford Brainstorm Lab, your view on how data can be a driving force in mental health care innovation, and the Real Pulse program. If you like this podcast, make sure to follow us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts, and stay tuned for more Data Dive podcast episodes like this one.